0: Welcome to episode 168 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on September 18th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tannell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. So let's jump right into your weekly source for Linux Good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. So this week, we have some controversial topics to talk about, but we're not going to start with those. We're going to save those for later in the show. Up first, we're going to talk about Linux Mint and their new website. Their new website looks a lot better than their previous website. So this has been in the works for quite a while. We talked about this new website coming in episode 162 of Twill a little over a month ago. And I I gotta say, I am very happy to see this new change. It looks much better. It's got better navigation for faster browsing. The information for using Linux Mint is a lot easier, so you can find the download links. For the latest release and a a much easier way it's directly at the home page of the big download button which is really good and a big improvement on the previous thing also at the there's at the top of the downloads page there's a big option to get the installation instructions which i think is a nice touch and they also made it easier to find like the minimum system requirements for for the like for installing mint and they have it on a new frequently asked questions page And one of the things that I really like about this new layout is the new system, how they display the donors and sponsors, because they have a live updating graph for the donors page. And they also have a sponsors page where it shows you like who who all the sponsors are, what tier they're in, and you can click to learn more about what tiers, how much it costs to be part of those tiers. So it's really interesting because it's one of the things that I admire about Linux Mint, and it's the way that they are so transparent with their finances. Uh, regarding the donors and sponsors and that sort of stuff. So the donors, sponsors, partners, all that stuff is laid out on their new website, and it's really cool. They used to have it where it would be a lot more difficult to find this information. They still made it possible to find it. It was They've always been transparent in this part, but it was all scattered and it was like on their blog or some cases were on their website and it was just kind of hard to find everything. Now they have it in a much more consolidated place, which I think is really cool. And I also think it's a, a really interesting approach. And I, I hope other projects are, you know, take that as an example to, you know, be transparent about that kind of thing, because it, it is very interesting to know, you know, how much a project is you know being funded to know how much they can do in the future and that sort of thing and also makes it easier to you know uh, find the donation button which in some projects it's not easy also some projects don't have it at all so there is that but this is a much big improvement to the previous version which is this one so this is the old linux mint website this is the one that they started i think they launched this in 2007 so about 14 years later They now have this new version, so I think it's quite good. And if anybody wants to check out the latest version of Linux Mint or the new Linux Mint website, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of Kali Linux, and that is 2021.3. Now, for those who are not aware, Kelly Linux is an open source Debian based Linux distribution geared towards various information security related stuff, such as a penetration testing, security research, computer forensics, reverse engineering, that kind of thing. Now, there's a lot of new stuff in this latest release, but I'm not going to cover everything because there's quite a lot. So if you want to learn more about it in full detail, I'll have links in the show notes. But first of all, let's talk about the new changes to open SSL support. They have added wider compatibility by default for OpenSSL, and this means that legacy protocols such as TLS 1.0 and TLS 1.1, as well as older ciphers, are enabled by default. And this is done to help increase uh, Kali's ability to talk to older, more obsolete systems and servers that are still using these older protocols. This may potentially increase the options available for attack surfaces. Now, to be clear, this is good for a pen tester, but this is not good for a user. So this is not a good configuration for a general purpose operating system. So, which it makes sense because Kali is, you know, as it it's built to be able to use for uh, ed, to penetration testing. It's not made to be used for regular users. Uh, it, so Kali enables the user to engage and talk with multiple potential targets with this news change. But... As a, you know, as a quick note, that because I feel like I should address this every time I cover Kali Linux, you know, because Kali Linux is not meant to be used as a daily driver operating system. If you want to get into penetration testing, then sure, it's a good option for that. But it's not meant to be used on a daily basis as your regular Linux distro. So for anyone out there doing that, please stop doing that. Consider running something else, anything else, really, not anything else. There are other things that are whatever. Uh, something else as your daily driver, while using Kali in the form that it was meant to be used in. Now with that said, let's get back to the Kali Linux news. So there's a new Kali Linux uh, tools site that they redid, and it's basically similar to what they did with the Kali A docs site. Basically, it's a whole refresh to it, making it easier to get information about various tools and how to use them and that sort of stuff inside of Kali. Lots of cool stuff there. Uh, They've also made some improvements to the virtualization. They've received a, a ton of improvements on the virtualization space, such as adding some conveniences like copy and pasting, as well as drag and drop between the host machine and the Kali VM. They've also improved support on a bunch of different VM platforms, and they've added new tools. To their set of penetration tools, which they basically do in every release. But there have, there's, a, there's quite a few in here, but I wanted to talk about three of them. For example, Caldera, Scalable Automated Adversary Emulation Platform. There's Subjack, which is Subdomain Takeover System. Uh, EAP Hammer, which is Targeted Evil Twin Attacks Against WPA2 Enterprise Wi-Fi Networks. And I understood some of those words. <laughs> if you were interested in that kind of thing, I'll have links in the show notes. Another cool thing that happened in this latest release is that Kali Linux or Kali NetHunter is now available to run on a smartwatch. That's right, on a smartwatch. That's very, very interesting. Now we go into much more depth on this topic in Destination Linux episode 244, which comes out tomorrow. Sunday, September 19th. So check that out. I'll have the links in the show notes. Also, if you haven't checked out last week's episode of Destination Linux, episode two, two, uh, 243, then be sure to do that because we were joined by a legend in the web browser world, Jan von Techner, the CEO and founder of Vivaldi. So if you want to have, you want to check out a really interesting interview, then be sure to check out episode 243 of Destination Linux. I'll have links in the show notes for that, as well as everything else. Related to this and, of course, the Kali Linux uh, distribution for 2021.3. Up next in the show, Collabora sent in some really cool news to the show regarding the work for the XR desktop. For those who are not familiar, the XR desktop is an open source project bringing the Linux desktop to VR, to virtual reality. Yep, that's right. So it works with uh, Valve SteamVR and Monado. So this summer, the XR desktop took part with the uh, for the first time in the Google Summer of Code. And with this, they, they did a lot of work on improving uh, usability of the VR system. And these two pieces that I want to talk about is that they have a new virtual reality keyboard, as well as the ability to load and render GLTF models inside of XR desktop. So first of all, let's talk about the new virtual reality keyboard, since the open XR uh, structure doesn't expose an API for text input. They needed to build their own solution. So Remco, the, one of the students who worked on the, the Google Summer of Code for XR desktop, implemented this with support for emojis and 56 languages. That's right, 56 languages was work put working in here. That also meaning they require to put extra work into the uh, library for lib input synth, such as for adding Unicode support to it. Uh, And this way it was implemented This actually makes it possible to change the entire keyboard layout and it makes it so that the virtual keyboard will also be usable outside of the XR desktop at some point, not exactly right now, but at some point it will be Uh, also the loading and rendering of GLTF models was done in this uh, Google summer of code structure. Uh, with Manus, uh, Manus, not sure which one, but uh, included uh, improving the renderer and also adding rendering techniques like normal mapping. Now, this work here enables XR Desktop to use assets like VR control uh, controller models and also 3D environments, which is really cool, so it can take stuff from Blender and put it inside of XR Desktop, which is just really awesome. So now, this is not necessarily available yet to mess with, Uh, It will be included in the upcoming release of 0.16, but it's not yet ready. But it's just so cool, I wanted to cover it. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about XR Desktop or the latest news from XR Desktop, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service or DBOS. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. Who wants to maintain a database, especially a MongoDB database? Because I don't. I mean, actually, I don't want to maintain any database. It doesn't matter which it is, but this is a service for MongoDB. Anyway, so you simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle... Everything, like provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service also in partnership with MongoDB, Inc. And together, they have ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of MongoDB document database as they become available. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free on the MongoDB service. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN-Mongo. Again, go to do.co slash DLN-Mongo to get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring again this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have some controversial topics. Now, the first one is, it's controversial depending on who you are, but the other ones are very controversial, so we're going to get to those in a minute. But first of all, let's talk about the new changes that are coming to the Budgie desktop from the Solus Project. So the Solus Project lead, Joshua Strobel, wrote on a blog post on his website about a big change coming to Budgie. And this change is that they're going to be dropping GTK for the Budgie desktop with Budgie 11. Now about the blog post, this is a well-written, in-depth blog post that goes into the what and the why of for all this the changes happening. So if you want the full details, because there's a there's a lot of breakdowns and links and re- and sources and stuff like that in the blog post, so I suggest checking out the link in the show notes. But for now, here's the gist of the matter. So Solus is dropping GTK for the Budgie desktop. They have announced that uh, they've decided to use the EFL, which is Enlightenment Foundation Libraries. Uh, enlightenment for those who don't know is also a window manager. Well, they also call it a desktop, but it's, it's not really either one because it does more than a window manager does. And it does less than a desktop environment does. So it's not exact. It's like a hybrid of the two. So I'm going to coin this as calling it a window environment. I don't know if that's already a thing or not, but let's go with it. Window environment. Uh, I wish they have chosen cute personally, cause I'm a fan of cute. And they say the reason they didn't is based on the recent actions by the Cute Company. Now, the fairly recent, uh, I, I, we talked about this in a previous episode of Twill. I'll have link that links in the show notes if you want to learn more about what he's referring to. But also, there's related to they says the licensing for Cute. Now, this part I don't agree with because the Cute licensing is open source. Uh, there, there are some issues with the actions they do of like when something is available open source and that sort of stuff related to like the LTS point releases and that kind of thing which is arguably uh, and understandably annoying to some people but the licensing has not been a problem since like 1999 so there's that anyway back to the topic at hand so uh, there's a lot of great quotes from this blog post so I'm going to cover you know many of them so bear with me there's gonna be a lot of quotes here so starting off uh, and I quote, what used to be a, com- a community welcoming diverse ideas focused on providing an equitable ecosystem for many members of the Linux community has gradually turned into an isolated silo of thought that p- that pays little mind to the concerns raised by its user. Now, this is referring to the GNOME project as well as the GTK community and that sort of thing, because if you, for those who don't know, GTK is managed by a GNOME project. Uh, And this is also not directly related to this, but it's most people would kind of reference this to the fact that the GNOME team got rid of desktop icons and also the system tray, even though the vast majority of users did not want them to get rid of those things, Uh, but they did anyway. So that's the kind of like, that's a reference to what this is relevant related to. Joshua goes on to say that requiring vendors like Solus and System76 to develop their own libraries to handle styling of their own specific applications, fragmenting the look of GTK apps that either use a platform theme or don't use one at all. Now this is interesting because a lot of people want their system to be cohesive, and when, there's a lot of differences between like the application having the theme, some people prefer the like some developers want the app developers to be able to have control of the theme, and then other people want the, the system to have the theme, so it's all you know nice look and feel, cohesive design. Now, app developers would really benefit from having control, but I don't think that the users should be forced to not have control. Like they should just have a priority system where the app developer gets the higher priority if they choose to have a a different theme and then by default anyway, and then the user could go in and like reset that priority. That is what I would prefer it to be. So I don't know. It just make it possible for the options to be there rather than removing all options. Joshua goes on to say that through their enforcement of the Edweta theme in their platform library, lib LibEdweta, which they pitch as a more or less the blessed way of adopting the Human Interface Guidelines or the HIG, they are eliminating both developer and user choice in the process. If you want to support and adopt the GNOME HIG via lib LibEdweta, but still offer third parties the flexibility to make the app integrate, well, you can't. So, and also this this is interesting because there's a lot of people talking about how like GNOME developers don't want them to theme their apps. And this is the case where there's an actual website where some GNOME developers created a website to tell distro developers to not theme their apps. And like it's like a plea or an open letter kind of thing. And it's to me, it's kind of weird because If you want to create an application that is used across all different types of desktops, because you're not really making it just for GNOME, you're making something in GTK. It should be usable in pretty much everything and not being able to theme it, you know, as a distro or as a user just seems weird, kind of seems like that's where they're leading towards. So anyway, back to the quotes. Uh, Joshua says that some improvements were proposed by an engineer at System76 to LibEdWeda's recoloring API, which is their alternative to theming that is specific to recoloring various elements of GNOME apps and is app-specific, not system-wide. Now, these improvements were rejected on the basis that some of the GNOME developers disliked the opinions expressed by the engineer on social media. Now, this is related to, this is Joshua's opinion, not mine, but this is uh, really interesting because when I looked at the, the documents about like what, what was the reason for the, this, the dismissal of it, and it was, someone said that this, the engineer from System 76 was threatening them, which is weird because all he said was that if you don't make changes and you continue on this path, you're going to lose users. That's, that's just a projection. That's not a threat. So that's weird. Anyway, back to the topic. So there's a lot of people who have uh, mixed reactions towards the n- the GNOME way, as it were. Uh, a developer from for GNOME wrote a blog post called the GNOME way, and you know talked about various different reasons of why they do things. And there was a very interesting discussion on episode 73 of Deal and Extend uh, about the GNOME way. I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to learn more about that and check out what they have to say about it. And there's but there's a, a lot of there's some things that are reasonable it makes sense from this gnome way blog post but there's also things that are kind of weird so let's kind of jump into that blog post a little bit like you know to keep because it is relevant to the topic but uh, so first of all the gnome way express one of the reasons why they do it this way is because every preference has a cost now this is true every time you you provide an option or a preference for a user or developer there is some level of cost in terms of developing it, also maintaining it and supporting it. So that is true. But is it worth removing all options to, to not have the cost? Um, that that's, depends on your perspective, I guess. And then they, they go on to say that uh, the, gnome, the GNOME developer, anyway, uh, we says, we don't do hacks. Rather than working around a problem at the wrong layer of abstraction, we believe in the going to the root of the problem and fixing it for everyone. That sounds fantastic unless that problem is desktop icons or system tray or the other stuff that Gnome has removed support entirely for or transfer it to extensions. So if you transfer it to extensions, isn't that kind of a hack? I think you could classify that as that. But Then he goes on to say that shell extensions are always going to be a niche thing. If it's going to be a niche thing, then why do you tell people to use the extensions instead of the features that you removed? That does It doesn't seem like that fits. Like, And also, I remember, I don't know, a few months ago, I covered how GNOME was going to be embracing shell extensions more, which I was excited for. But now this blog post is saying they're not doing it. I'm so confused by that part. But this blog post also goes on to say, the GNOME Way blog post, that the traditional desktop is dead and it's not coming back. Note, I'm talking about Windows 95 era UI patterns here, not desktop versus mobile, Instead of trying to bring back old concepts like menu bars or status icons, invent something better from first principles. Now, there's a couple of things that I have an issue with that part is, for example, you say that it's a, the traditional desktop is dead. Except for the fact that Windows still uses that desktop paradigm and has since 95. No, it's not dead at all. And also, a lot of people prefer that UI. Maybe others don't, but that's fine. But to say that it is dead is... Kind of ridiculous. Also to say that status icons are old concepts that shouldn't be there. People still use them and still want them. So, not old. It's current. Uh, and also you say that you should invent something better from uh, first from principles. So, yeah, if you have something better, feel free to take out the feature. But that's not what GNOME does. GNOME just takes out the feature, and that's it. So, that's one of the reasons why people are bothered by this kind of Uh, opinion expressed by the gnome developer now related to system-wide theming this developer says that system-wide theming is a broken idea and if you don't like the way apps look contribute directly to them so basically if you're not a developer you don't have an opinion or your opinion doesn't matter because you're essentially saying that you know if you're not contributing directly to the application or the platform or whatever then you're you know if you don't like it then whatever like that's a weird approach because system-wide theming is a broken idea in their opinion but why is it broken i think it's the best option because i want my desktop to be cohesive i prefer a dark mode because you know uh, like some people get headaches from the uh, from having a bright theme now i don't get really headaches necessarily but i do get some eye fatigue from those so i like to have dark themes on every application i use So it's just it's just kind of it's just kind of odd because I think that a lot of people would agree that the dark mode is an accessibility feature and a system wide theming makes that possible. So why is it a broken idea? I don't know. Uh, This is one of the reasons that Solus is dropping GTK because they say GNOME is effectively removing features and API that allow for system wide designs. In my opinion, this would make it very, very hard to have a consistent look and feel without the, using the default Adwaita theme, which seems to be what GNOME is trying to enforce anyway. However, even if the user does use the Adwaita theme to have stuff like a global dark mode, it, it requires every app to use and implement the support for the library called lib So if an application doesn't support it, then it wouldn't have the functionality for a dark theme Anyway, at least not in a global sense, even if you did activate the preferred dark configuration. It just seems like a lot of complication for something that shouldn't be that difficult in terms of like I would like to use a different theme. You know? It seems GNOME is repeating is repeatedly getting in the way of user choice and is now getting in the way of developer choice. Depending on how this, you know, actually I said that this 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 topic wasn't going to be that controversial. It uh, turns out I was wrong about that. I think it is going to be very controversial. But anyway, so let's talk about Budgie and dropping GDK. As I said, they're going to be using uh, EFL instead. And they say that they're going to be even potentially replacing some software that is developed by GNOME with alternative software that they develop themselves in-house or you know, if they find a third party they can use instead. Now, this is interesting because it's going to be a big pivot for Budgie going forward. They haven't given any kind of a, a release announcements or when that's going to happen. I, I assume it's going to take a lot, a lot of work, so it'll probably take quite a while to get that happening. But it's really interesting that they're doing this. And I think that there's know, a potential that a lot of other, um, you know, there, I think that there's potential that some people will look at this as an example of, you know, GTK not allowing flexibility like they used to. There was a really interesting uh, video from an Inkscape developer talking about how the community for GNOME has changed. How they used to be more focused on community and more focused on uh, customizability and that sort of stuff, and that seems to have gone away. I'll have a link in that for the for that in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it's just it's kind of interesting because there's a lot more people talking about uh, KDE Plasma these days and also other desktop environments. Not necessarily GNOME and GTK-based things, so I'm curious to see what happens going forward with other desktop environments because there are others who are considering not necessarily rebasing, but you know making changes because of these things that are happening with GTK. So I I think this is going to be a very interesting era of desktop environments going forward. And if you'd like to learn more about this then I'll have links in the show notes. And also be sure to leave a comment below or on the DLN forum to let me know what you think about this, you know, the things that that Gnome is doing or the things that Solus said and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are. So Ubuntu have announced that they will be switching the format of the Firefox web browser from a Deb to a snap starting in the next release of 21.10. Now, my initial reaction was probably similar to your reaction to hearing this, and that is simply one word. Why? Of course, there will be some who point fingers at Canonical for trying to force snaps on people, and personally, I somewhat leaned to that myself. Not completely, but a little bit. I mean, I understood the reason for the Chromium snap because it was a lot of extra work to maintain a different set of packages for different versions of the distro for a non-default browser, but, Firefox is the default browser, so my gut reaction was a tad bit irked by this news. Uh, But upon further research, it seems that it's not just a canonical decision, but rather a decision with Canonical and Mozilla. And the reason seems to be that Mozilla is now going to be officially managing the snap themselves, which makes simplifying uh, the management for the Mozilla team easier in Linux versus having to make multiple dev packages for various different versions of the same distro. It also is worth noting that Mozilla also officially maintains the Firefox flat pack already, so this seems like Mozilla is getting more directly involved in Linux support of Firefox, and that part is really good news in my opinion. Now, there might be some people who don't like the snap part, but you know, with that said, there are some consequences of this that I suspect many will not like. But Ubuntu's Ken Van Dyne posted this news on the Ubuntu forum stating, this is the result of cooperation and collaboration between the desktop and Snap teams at Canonical and Mozilla developers. And this, this is the first uh, step towards a dev to Snap transition that will take place during the 22.04 development cycle. So what does this mean exactly? Well, this will only impact users of Ubuntu desktop installing 21.10 or upgrading to 21.10 for now if you run one of the flavors you won't be affected but well yet but you will at some point the deb will continue to be supported through the life cycle of 20, 21.10 however the deb to snap transition is scheduled to be done in 22.04 lts so regardless if you use ubuntu proper or a flavor or a derivative of ubuntu it seems everyone is going to be a- affected by this starting with 22.04 of course, not everyone will be pleased by this, but there are some benefits to this change. For example, getting releases directly from Mozilla means that we can theoretically get updates the same day as the other operating systems that they work on. Uh, previously, users would need to wait on their distribution to do testing and push out the releases. Also, that means that we get security updates faster as well. Uh, but you know, for those of you who have used a snap in the past, you may be aware of a common complaint that snaps have, which is that they are slow. So Ken addressed this in the forum post and says that there are speed improvements that come with the newest compression algorithm and also building the snap with a newer tool chain, which is Clang and Rust, and more optimizations will likely result in a faster application. So I hope so, have not I don't know if they've been doing some testing or benchmarking, but I hope it is faster to use snaps because I do have some snaps installed, but typically it's for an application that only releases as a snap. If I have an option for a flat pack, I I tend to go for flat pack. But there's also this other question that is kind of uh, probably the the biggest one, and that is, after the transition, do you have to use the snap? The answer to that is yes and also no. So the no part is you could opt to use the flat pack instead if you wanted to, or you could use the tarballs that Mozilla already provides for downloads. However the tarballs aren't really, they don't really, they're not really an option because I don't think they have the ability to do uh, automatic updates. They require you to do manual updates the last time I checked. So uh, it's not really, that doesn't really count. So the options are uh, flat packs or Snaps. So the answer is kind of no because of flat packs, but also, yeah, pretty much. So how will this affect users of distributions that are derivatives of Ubuntu, such as Pop OS, Zorn OS, Elementary OS, well, this is likely to put them in a tough spot because this means they will either have to implement snaps, use the Flatpak version of Firefox, or package a dev of Firefox themselves. I think the most practical option for them to do is likely the Flatpak option because many of the derivatives prefer Flatpaks already, it seems. So it just kind of makes it a much easier to do versus you know every single one of these different distributions packaging their own dev version of Flatpak's. Or that version of Firefox, so I assume that the flatpak is the one that's going to most distributions are going to go with. And I know I'm just speculating here, but this kind of change, while not entirely on Ubuntu, might make people worried about what it is to come for Ubuntu, and might start the conversation for some derivatives to potentially rebase on something other than Ubuntu because this change is a significant change for a def- uh, important default application, and while it does make sense that Mozilla would want to support something that is you know, easier for them to maintain because it's one application in one package instead of having to maintain a different dev for each uh, each different version. For those who don't know, the reason why the universal packages are even, they even exist is because with the dev files, you're essentially re- required to build a new version of a dev for each additional release of the distro. So for example, the 2104 deb and the 2110 have to be different builds. of, So they're two different packages for two different debs. And that's a lot of work for a developer to maintain. And the snaps make it where you only need one. Same thing with flat packs. The flat pack, you only need one to build and it'll work everywhere or everywhere it's supported anyway. And that's why the universal formats are even being done, which is great in my opinion. I think the universal formats are important, but this is going to be an issue for, you know, users as well as distro developers who work on derivatives of ubuntu who might not want to use uh, they might want to use a dev version or a a more native version i guess you could call it and um but anyway what do you think about this news let me know what you think in the comments below or on the destination linux forum i'm very curious what your thoughts are and if you'd like to learn more about this i'll have links in the show notes below and i got a quick uh, correction from the live chat which you did if you didn't know this show is streamed live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. And in the chat, Rick lets me know that the TARS do auto-update if you have them in a folder with permissions for your user. So you can get auto-updating if you're using the tarballs uh, related to Firefox downloads. So there's that. Up next in the show, we have an interesting bit of information. It's the last controversial topic and it's controversial for many reasons. But uh, Purism sent out an email to some of their customers that received mixed reactions, you could say. So for a quick breakdown, they are saying that the Librem 5 is shipping to some and others will receive it later. Not very clear there, but okay. They also said they're going to increase the price again in November and then again in March. Some are glad that the phone is apparently finally coming and others are just sick of Purism as a company. So, mixed reactions, yeah. <laughs> in the email, they address the common question, which I'm glad they addressed because it is a very important question to answer, and that is, why is it taking this long? Now, some people don't appreciate the, the answer that was provided, but, you know, it was less than ideal in some people's opinions, but let's talk about what the answer was. So, and I quote, Like all hardware manufacturers, our plans have repeatedly changed due to challenges in the global supply chain. The continuing impacts of the pandemic have led us to confront a continuing global shortage of components, rising cost of components, increased lead time for components that need to be prepaid for, and higher than anticipated demand compounding delays. So, this is... Like it is true that there is a global shortage of components and the costs are rising and and there's also like issues of lead time and having to prepay for everything. All of that is accurate. However, the Librem 5 was originally said to announce that the delivery date was supposed to be January 2019. That has nothing to do with any of the reasons they gave for that. They missed it by like, even if you, you just count like, let's not even count the pandemic they missed it by an entire year before the pandemic even happened. So now they're at two and a half years of missing it. Now, some people have access to the devices and some don't, although most of the time the ones that did were in unfinished versions. So does that count? The next question they addressed in this email is that, is it worth the wait? Uh, They say that the software continues to improve, so the functionality of what you get in your hands will be leaps and bounds better than the early recipients would have experienced. Okay, that does make sense that the more time you have to develop it, the better would become. So that's true. But why would you ship a device to anyone prior to it being ready? I always found that as being very weird. You know, they sent out various batches to people to just to claim that they met their shipping date, you know, but they didn't. And the devices they were shipping were not remotely ready. And at one point they were shipping devices that couldn't even make phone calls. So uh, whatever. Whatever. Also, apparently they shipped unfinished devices to YouTubers for review. Why would you do that? It's not done. They're reviewing an unfinished... Another reason is the Librem 5 is getting faster and better with age, they say. What? How can hardware from 2017 get better with age? It's not a bottle of wine. I don't understand what that means. So, the next one is that it's challenging a duopoly of Android and iOS and the monopolistic behaviors of those companies is a long journey that we are still at the early stages of. Well, then it's not there yet. You're just, you're saying right now, it's not, you're in the early stages, Is not really battling yet or challenging or whatever. So Librem 5 is not even close to challenging Android or iOS. And I wish it was, but it isn't. And you're charging more for an, more than an iPhone cost and you're in return offering much, much less. Now, if you were the only product, the only company making a, a Linux-based phone, you could argue that the difference is because you're an enthusiast for Linux and that's why you want this device and that's what they're, they're building and all that. But there's also the PinePhone. Because on the other hand, the PinePhone essentially offers the same thing, but for $200, not dollars Sure, the Librem 5 is slightly more powerful than the Pine phone, but is it $1,000 more powerful? I would have to say no. So, they say in their email, increasing prices for all new orders of the Librem 5 in stages, the phone will be priced at $1,199 from all orders received on or after November 1st, 2021, and we expect this price to go upward to $1,299 in March 2022 as component prices change and as we deliver greater quantities of products. Okay, as component prices change, all right, fair enough. Global shortage would be an issue with pricing at this point and companies would have to increase their prices. That kind of makes sense. But let's remind people, it started at 700 and it's been gradually growing in price before. Then you also say, as we deliver greater quantities of products. What? The price increases as you deliver greater quantities of product. That is the exact opposite of how the principle of supply and demand is supposed to work. That's that's kind of weird, but okay, sure. Now, the reception of this news has been mixed at best. So some people are happy that purism is trying to do the things that they say they are and others don't believe anything they say. Now, I want purism to be successful. Because I want their mission to be successful in terms of the, you know, pushing forward for the Linux ecosystem, pushing forward for open source and, and the culture around these things. Like I do want those things to be successful. So I have mixed feelings of my own. I want them to be successful, but I don't expect them to be successful at this point because they've done so much weird stuff over the years that it's hard to believe that they will be. I mean, I realize I have a different perspective than most on this topic, since I come from it as a reporter of news, uh, but and also because so, you know a l- lot of people like like this show because I don't put my opinion in too much, uh, but I do put my opinion in a lot of the time. But just in some people's perspective, I don't do it too much. But in this case, I kind of have to. I, I don't really want to because it's going to add more editing, which for people who are watching the live stream already know it's going to add a lot of editing. But I feel like this particular topic just needs it because uh, I've covered Purism and their products over 20 times on this show, almost 30 times, and I've been following the news for the Librem 5 ever since it was first announced in 2017, and since day one, I've been covering it on this show. So I've been paying attention to everything they've possibly done throughout that time, and there's a lot to be uh, annoyed by. So I, I tried to be hopeful about this device, and at this point... Uh, well, if you go back to 2017, you'll see that I was hopeful. I was enthusiastic. I wanted it to succeed. I still want it to. It's just they're doing things that I don't expect it to be succeeding. I still want it to. It's hard for me to express like why I'm annoyed and also why I want them to succeed because it seems like a like a contradiction, but it is what it is. But at this point, I'm just more disappointed in the state of the company and the state of what they're doing because purism has a track record of not delivering what they say they will both on time and in some cases at all for those that don't know purism seems to crowdfund everything they started you know they first started with crowdfunding in some like some laptops back in 2015 they missed the delivery date for those laptops by i think a year maybe more Uh, they also crowdfunded a tablet which didn't reach the goal so it never came to be which isn't a big deal You know, sometimes crowdfunding doesn't happen, and you don't be able to make the product, and that's fine. Except for the weird decision that Purism made to have people let them keep the money for a potential future tablet that still doesn't exist. That's weird. Why would that even be an option? I mean, the people did make the choice to let them keep it, but it's very weird. Then in 2017, Purism announced the crowdfunding for the Librem 5, which they claimed was supposed to be delivered on January 2019. And that obviously did not happen. So there's an issue there that I have with, you know, people talking about how Purism is making a big change or even more specifically Purism themselves talking about how they're making a big change to the platform when they're not really like PinePhone started years after the work done for the Librem 5 and they already have multiple editions that you could have bought. Like they have the regular version at 150 and the convergence version at 200 and those are already things, and they started years later, and they got done faster. Like it just seems not the best option. Plus, also Purism started the awesome MVNO reseller service, where the cost of the mobile service is twice the price of the network that they piggyback off of. But if that's not enough, you don't legally own the phone number on the service. Like there are laws in the United States that uh, guarantee ownership of phone numbers from mobile carriers, but the way that Purism structured the MVNO. It looks like they don't apply. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't have any idea, really. But the way it's worded, it kind of doesn't look like it is. But again, I don't know. I'm just some guy on the internet. Now, if these reasons aren't enough for you to have an issue with purism, in your opinion, maybe the refusal to give refunds could do it. Because purism claims they are now offering refunds, but not too long ago, they were outright denying refunds. One customer informed me that they were told that they couldn't get a refund until their shipping date was confirmed. What does that mean? Why would you need to have a shipping date for something you're not going to ship? That doesn't make any sense. And another customer told me, uh, actually they posted on Reddit too and a Purism forum, that they had to contact their state attorney to get them to issue a refund. What? Why would you have to do that? It's because... You know, it's not legal to say you can't have a refund, in the U.S. anyway. It's not legal to do that. So they contacted their state attorney to get them to send a letter to make purism give them the refund. That shouldn't have to be necessary. So there's these, all these different things just paint a very bad light on purism to me. And I'm going to end the topic here. Let me know what what your thoughts are on this topic. And I know that some will agree with me and some will disagree with me. Uh, that's a guarantee for this kind of thing. But I'm curious, do you think purism's delays and the price increases are justified? Or do you think that purism is kind of a joke at this point? Let me know what your thoughts are in the comments below. I'd love to know what you, what you think about this particular topic and uh, also how I covered the topic in the show. Was I too opinionated or not enough? What, you know... I, I think I gave you, a, like, I also tried to give a lot of history, but I didn't want to go into the super amount of details, because there's a lot of different issues that come up that come across the, the time frame. But if you're interested in learning more, I guess I could make a video about the Purism Librem 5 experience, or the history of it, or whatever. And if you want the more details and that kind of thing, because it, it's a lot of details that are scattered across many different websites, and I know these things because I've been paying attention for years about it. So if you want a video about that, let me know in the comments below for that too. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it is a way to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides a lot of different tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto generate those passwords for you and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff, which is fantastic because it not only does it work on your mobile applications, it also works on desktop applications and your web browser and even on the command line if you want to use it. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium account because there's a lot of great features that start at less than a dollar per month. That's right. For less than a dollar per month, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, Bitwarden Send, so much stuff For less than a dollar per month. So check it out. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to Bitwarden.com/slash DLN to get started. And also, if you have people in your family or if you work at a business and want to be able to share an or like a vault, you can do so with the business organizational vault or a family vault, which makes it easier for people to to set up, you know, employees or family members into using uh, Bitwarden, be able to have a password manager but without having to do all of the setup themselves. And it makes it so much easier to do that, And it also, you can help them learn how to use it and even make it possible to do sharing securely between different, you know, different accounts in the, for the passwords, which is another fantastic feature. If you have multiple people in your family who you want to have using password manager, which everyone should have a password manager. I think Bitwarden is a fantastic option for that, especially since you get it for less than a dollar per month for all of these different features. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this week in Linux. Up next in the show, I have a really interesting application to tell you about. So first of all, Discord is a very popular service amongst gamers and really most people. However, Discord is a proprietary service. And recently they announced that they are going to strip down functionality that bots will be able to do, which I suspect is going to send some shockwaves across the entire platform. But, you know, so a lot of people have been curious about different alternatives and there are a few options. Like, for example, there's Mumble, which is a great option for voice chat, but not really a good option for the chat features of Discord, though Mumbles uh, also lacks features in the voice chat part, such as like uh, echo suppression and that kind of thing. But for the most part, it is a good option, but not for the chat part. Whereas Matrix and Element is a fantastic option for a federated chat platform, which I use every day. I'm a big fan of, of uh, Matrix slash Element, uh, but, you know, it's not the best for group voice chat. It's not really practical. You could use Jitsi, but it's not the same. And it's, you know, there's issues there. Uh, but I kept looking and I recently found another alternative called Revolt Chat, now Revolt Chat is a very cool project being actively developed as not just an alternative to Discord but an open source alternative of like basic not a, I guess to say like a clone but the user experience is very familiar if you are a user of Discord. So Revolt Chat is still in alpha/beta slash phase right now so they say you shouldn't use it in production but based on my testing it is coming along very nicely. It already has a lot of great features that people would expect from Discord. Not everything, of course, but a lot. And in addition to being open source, it's also self-hostable. That's right, which is super interesting. So instead of having like your own server in someone else's instance, like with Discord, you can create your own server inside of your own instance on your own uh, DigitalOcean droplet or whatever. I think that is very, very cool. Uh, They also have a web-based UI with a server that is built in Rust, which I'm just a fan of Rust, so... I'm just, you know, glad that's a thing. Uh, so it's currently in a public beta testing phase. So if you want to get an invite code, you just go to their website and request it, which I'll have a link in the, in the show notes. And it has a lot of features right now, like the ability to create your own server on their instance, uh, create text channels, voice channels, assign user roles in a server, you know, tweak the theme, whether you want a dark theme or a light theme, change the color, accent color stuff. You can also customize the CSS if you want to. It has the ability to support bots, which is definitely something that is going to be uh, interesting to people who want an alternative to Discord, especially you know, coming soon, rel- relatively soon anyway, when Discord makes those changes. Uh, and easy to manage permissions for the text and voice channels. You can do friend requests for other users on the, sur- on the service. Uh, you can save, there's like a save notes section. You can control your notifications more like very like robustly. Uh, it also has de- uh, desktop settings. So you can have integration with your desktop, a uh, hardware acceleration support, which is great. Uh, also the self-hosting, by the way, uses Docker. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a kind of an easy setup self-hosting just point that out, but there is uh, a couple of issues. It's, you know, it's missing some features. It's not totally there yet. As I've said, it's still in alpha, alpha beta. So, like, for example, the voice channels don't seem to be fully implemented yet, so they don't really work, but, you know, I assume that's coming pretty soon, and I haven't had a lot of time testing it, Uh, but so far, Revolt Chat seems very impressive and very promising, and I think I may look into setting up a self-hosted option in the future. Maybe we could have, like, a self-hosted DLN Revolt Chat server. Uh, I don't know how to do that yet, but I think that sounds very cool, so... At some point in the future, I will look into that when it gets closer, you know, outside of the whole beta testing phase kind of thing. So I think this is a very interesting alternative. It looks a lot like Discord, but that's kind of the value of, you know, an alternative to Discord because you can easily know how to use it if you've already been a Discord user. So it's just really interesting. And if you want to learn more about Revolt Chat, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, I want to show you about the latest backup tool that I've found called Pika to Backup. And basically, it makes it easy to use something that has is very it's been around for a very long time. It's very powerful. It's called Borg Backup. Now, Borg Backup is not the easiest thing to use. It's a great piece of software, but it's not that really user friendly. So Pika Backup provides a user friendly, straightforward experience. Or using Borg Backup, which I think is very cool. So it has support for uh, setting up new backup repositories or using existing ones, create backups locally or remote. You can also s- uh, save disk space because uh, Pika Backup does not do, need to copy anything. It is transactional backups. Uh, also, it has encryption for the backups if you want to use it. And it also makes it possible to recover files or folders in your file browser with the integration if you want to do that. Uh, now, there's there's a lot of cool stuff about it, and there are some things missing. So I'll let you know that the, it doesn't have the ability to do scheduled backups just yet. Uh, and it also doesn't have excluding files from a backup via regular expressions. But it, uh, I think they are working on those things. Now, it also isn't intended to be a full system recovery tool. So it's mostly like your personal files and that kind of thing. Uh, but I do think that having an option for a backup tool like this, where it's an easy-to-use, You plug in your USB drive and just let it go is such a cool thing to be able to provide that, especially with having board backup as the backend and not having to use the command line and all the configurations and stuff with board backup sounds fantastic. So if you'd like to learn more about Pika backup, I'll have links in the show notes below. I'm next in the show. And the last topic for today is something I am super excited about, which is RetroArch is now available to be used on Steam. And this is very cool because it makes it a lot easier to access uh, emulators for many people who are just comfortable using Steam as their front end. So, if you're for those who are not familiar, uh, RetroArch is a front end for emulators, game engines, and also media players. It enables you to run classic games on a wide range of computers and consoles, and also you can have uh, your settings configured for one for for everything in one in one go with RetroArch. And it has advanced features like shaders and rewinding and net play uh, and next frame response times it has uh, machine translation uh, accessibility features all kinds of stuff in retroarch for so because it's not just an emulation thing it's a it's a it's a platform to have emulators built for it so retroarch is not the first emulation solution for steam but it's not just a single emulator, like I said. It provides a slick graphical interface to use different kinds of emulators, which they refer to as cores. So right now, the amount of cores available are limited, but it's still a significant number, so you can still do a lot of uh, emulation through it. And it's, but it's going to expand over time as well, with each one of these things being a Steam DLC that you can install. And for those, you know, for those cores are what they refer to as an emulator that is implemented via their, their plugin system. But of course you can get RetroArch on a wide variety of devices already and you don't need Steam to use it. In fact, they have their own Linux distro called Laka that you know we've recently discussed on Twill. But this release makes it easier for people, for a lot of people anyway, who will be introduced to RetroArch Uh, to an audience that may have not even heard of it. But it also makes it easier for people to, you know, want to get updates because they'll be managed by Steam and it'd be just a lot more convenient for people. So I think this is a fantastic idea. And I have already installed it. I haven't had a chance to play with it yet, but I will be doing that very soon. And uh, RetroArch cores available right now through the DLC is Final Burn Neo, which is a multi-arcade machine emulator. Uh, Genesis Plus GX for Sega Genesis, Mega Drive, uh, sega cd master system game gear and some more also there's the uh mason or uh, M- i'm not sure Messen nes or Messen s for snes there's also the uh, a couple of game boy options uh, including game boy and game boy color and all this other stuff as well as some Atari 2600 with stella uh chronos for sega saturn uh, Mupen 64 Plus for ni- for Nintendo 64. I've used Mupen 64 Plus before, like separately as a standalone, and it works quite well. Uh, and it makes it possible to play some games that are not meant to have network play to be able to have that, which is fantastic. I, emulations have come a long way since I first started doing them. Uh, you know, I I don't even know how long it's been, maybe 20 years. I don't know, something like that. There's also another PlayStation one for PCSX, uh, and also they they're working on a lot more. So I am so excited for that, and with RetroArch now on Steam, I think this could help make the Steam Deck uh, kind of be an all-in-one gaming device, so I'm even more excited about the Steam Deck, which, I mean, there's, uh, we don't know exactly when I'm, we're going to get those out, because depending on when you, when you ordered it, you don't really, they, they kind of give you a rough estimate, so I don't want to wait, but I'm, I'm going to have to. But I do think it's really cool because they did say that the dev kits have supposedly already been sent out to some people, which is a good sign it's getting closer. Uh, But I think the Steam deck is going to be really cool, especially with the combination of RetroArch now on Steam. If you'd like to learn more about this particular topic, I'll have links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, then please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel and the show, we have multiple ways to do so. You can contribute via Patreon, sponsors, PayPal, and others. You can learn more by becoming a patron when you go to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me in the during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. And also if you'd like to support the channel you can do so with the Linux is everywhere t-shirt which is the shirt I'm wearing right now and you can get with that by going to dealinstore.com plus while you're there you can check out all the other great stuff that is at the dealin store like hats uh, hoodies, mugs, stickers, aprons, backpacks, all sorts of stuff. Really cool stuff at dealinstore.com. And if you like some more podcasting goodness, then check out the rest of the stuff on Destination Linux Network, where we have Hardware Addicts, Destination Linux, Deal and Extend, a pseudo show, and so much more. Check it out at destinationlinux.network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week at DLNLive.com. Now, this, the UTC number might change pretty soon because of daylight savings time switching, but just that might change. And so keep in mind, it's always 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to reference that, there you go. Anyway, thanks for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux Good News.